Hello, welcome again to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Today I have Evan uh, here with me today, and we uh, talked about having a conversation on the theme of displacement. Uh, on this podcast, we often talk about localizing or localism and the sense of place, uh, but I think what we also need to realize is that many people are displaced, either because they grew up in Western society and their parents moved around, their grandparents moved around, and they feel placeless, uh, but also because they were forced to, to be displaced, either through um, due to political reasons or increasingly due to shifting climate conditions um, and many others as well. And so we thought we'd talk about kind of this theme of displacement, refugees as well, um, the idea of refugees, and related to many kind of related topics that are relevant to, to Evan, to Evan's life. So, so why don't we um, start by, Evan, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and maybe set the stage a little bit of kind of some of the, the themes that, that you want to dig into here. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, my name is Evan Welkin, and um, I'm originally from the Cascadia bioregion. And um, so the theme of displacement began for me quite young because I was born in a declining logging community. So um, right from the start, you know, I was witness to like uh, the helicopter logging that was beginning to happen in that area because there was no good wood left in an easily available place. So these communities, in order to survive, were increasingly going to more and more desperate measures to, to, to keep the logging industry alive, including, you know, pulling up logs uh, from inaccessible ridgetops with, with heavy equipment and helicopters. And so I really have this deep, vivid memory of like helicopters flying overhead as some of my earliest memories uh, with huge, you know, second growth or even old growth wood still, you know, flying below them. And, you know, at the same time, below below the rotors, um, my family had um, chosen that place to live um, as part of an intentional community. So we were a kind of, um, yeah, uh, back to the land uh, project with um, sort of a dispersed um, in a in a in a hills of the Oregon Coast Range, um, community of of folks um, trying to connect with each other, connect more with the land, uh, do community projects together, and so that really left an important imprint for me. And I'm sure we'll get more into it, but I think over the course of my life, particularly coming from the Pacific Northwest, which has this history of having been an extraction-based uh, industry since, you know, the arrival of settlers, white settlers. I think um, that's really been a real underlying um, theme in my life experience, for sure. Okay, okay. Um, so one, uh, the way that my understanding is that uh, the way that you met your wife was that you were both... Um, activists for kind of you know human rights for for palestinians right and living conditions for palestinians you, do you want to talk about that work obviously it's very relevant in the news today uh do you want to talk about kind of how you got into that work if you want to talk a little bit about meeting your wife that way and uh, a little bit about how you see the situation today and 
you know, obviously this is this is a situation where you know both peoples are unsettled or have been unsettled or displaced uh, throughout history, and and so it's a very difficult situation. Do you want do you want to talk about it? Absolutely, yeah. So I think it fits really well within this theme of of displacement um, because I first began to get. Um, interested in the in the region of Israel and Palestine because um, my mother is originally from Turkey and so I had um, that part of the world in mind but um, it really came home to me when I studied abroad in high school so from my home in the Pacific Northwest I um, picked up at 16 and went to uh, to study for a year with a Turkish family in in Turkey and um, you know, within a month of my arrival, uh, September 11th happened back in the United States, and uh, I was really struck that um, even as a what I had considered myself to be a fairly open-minded, like politically conscious uh, person, uh, I was surprised that everybody around me there, and when I say everybody, I mean really, <laughs> the common narrative understood by all the Turks around me was that that event was a direct uh, consequence of U.S. support for Israel. Hmm. I mean, it was talked about in the press. It was talked about by my host family. I mean, people of all kinds of different political persuasions. And I think a really key takeaway for me about that was, wow, you know, there's there's whole different narratives, not just sort of uh, maybe uh, superficial ways that we see cultural differences or, you know, oh, wow, he eats that way and he, I eat that way, this way. It was, it was just profoundly a different worldview, making sense for everybody around me of what I think for many people from the U.S. was a profoundly surprising event. I mean, even if we saw it as sort of chickens coming home to roost or whatever, I think many of us asked questions of like, well, what, why did this happen uh, on that day? And it really got me thinking about like kind of what are some of these root causes and these people around me were telling me it was our support for Israel. And I wanted to know more about what that really meant. So, um, you know, upon completing that experience and, and going through high school, I ended up going to a college in North Carolina where I was in, um, in class with a number of Palestinian students who had just gone through the second intifada. So the war in Iraq had just begun. Uh, the second intifada was was winding down in Palestine, or or <laughs> had been brutally repressed. And these students were were fired up about U.S. imperialism, about um, you know Palestinian identity. You know, this is a point where you know it began to be like possible to like show the Palestinian flag and like talk about Palestinian resistance and nonviolent resistance included um, in a way that uh, was was also new for me. And mm. so I was really influenced by hearing these students who were my peers talk about their life experience and what they'd lived through um, just in order to have the opportunity to go to school and then eventually get the opportunity to go abroad and study in the US, similar and reflecting on my own experience of going abroad and studying in Turkey. Um, and so I thought a lot at that time about, you know, what does it mean to be, um, you know, at risk or insecure in your own home place? And of course, again, I was aware of the historical injustices that had 
um, led to the development of the idea of Zionism and um, Jews coming to, to the land of Israel as a, um, you know a way of of feeling like they could create a state. Um, but frankly speaking, then with uh, Palestinians who said, you know, we didn't we didn't have anything to do with the Holocaust. Like, why do we need to pay for that? Mm -hmm. um, that situation struck me and was certainly something I'd never heard before. So, um, so yeah, from there, I really began to get involved in Palestine solidarity activism. I worked um, at first in many of these projects that were kind of like, let's raise up both voices, let's find spaces for dialogue, because I felt that that was, that was right to sort of like, try to help there be more space for public discourse on this issue. But again, I think the thing that increasingly became clear to me was that the disproportionality of the conflict in Israel and Palestine was so great that it was a disservice, I think, at some times to uh, to like put a Palestinian young person, an Israeli young person up on stage and say, you know, we're looking for pathways to dialogue when at the at the root of the problem was still this fact that the Palestinian was under military occupation and that Israeli, you know, whether they had already done or were going to would would soon be forced into military service to actually perpetuate that military occupation. And and so all of that, I think, uh, then really did get me back to thinking about my early experiences of being from a place where um destruction and you know constant sense of instability of the place my home place uh really resonated and to be fair in that situation i was resonating more with the experience of of palestinians who were talking about that being a part of their day-to-day -day life um and so i increasingly got involved and and uh did more and more palestinian solidarity activism i ended up working for an organization the rachel corey foundation which was a foundation set up by the family of Rachel Corey, who is from my hometown in Olympia, Washington. She was killed in Rafah in the southern part of the west of uh, Gaza by an Israeli bulldozer trying to demolish a house. And she had basically put herself in front of that house to prevent it from being demolished. And she was run over by those same bulldozers that are now, uh, again, raising uh, homes in, in Gaza as this uh, Israeli offensive has has really ramped up. And so all of that then eventually led to me really wanting to go to Palestine and see with my own eyes what was going on. Because people kept saying, you know, you can understand it on a kind of intellectual level, but what you need to do is you need to go and see it with your own eyes. And so I, um, you know, it took me some time to figure out how and when, but I ultimately went uh, with a delegation uh, that, went all over the area, but particularly uh, spent time in the southern part of the West Bank in an area called Masafar Yatta, which is in the southernmost part south of Hebron. It's a very rural, very uh, economically marginalized part, even by Palestinian standards. Uh, many people still live in caves uh, or, um, you know, very, very close to the land as shepherds, um, some agriculture. But but it's quite rough living there in the Negev desert. And the story of that that whole area is that in the late 90s, the area had been fully evacuated. All of the people in that area had been displaced 
from Masafariata by uh, by government orders to create a military training area in that whole zone. So the the idea essentially was to basically take advantage of this idea of a military training zone to basically just kick hundreds of people out of their villages and homes and off their land in mm-hmm. order to, of course, um, you know, make make more room for Israeli settlers and, you know, military exercise in that space. And so what had actually miraculously happened is that as a result of that uh, decision and displacement of such a huge number of people in in a short period of time is that Israeli uh, activists rallied to bring the case to the Supreme Court. And in fact, the Supreme Court in a very, very rare um, decision uh, ordered that that families be allowed to return to their um, to their homes, and so that is what happened. So, in the early two thousands, uh, people returned to their homes, and of course, the settlers who had moved in in the meantime were quite uh, angry about this and began to really uh, provoke and attack the um, the Palestinians. Who, you know, and especially, there is a particular instance in this village of Atuani where uh, there's a central village where there's a school and then several small satellite villages around it that don't have schools or infrastructure. So students have to walk through the desert to come to the school. And what was happening is that settlers were actually attacking children on their way to uh, to school in the morning and in the afternoon as they crossed the desert. And so this village called in international support basically to uh, bear witness to what was going on and support them in nonviolently resisting this um, this oppression. But realistically, you know, this question of displacement then was always on their mind. You know, the Supreme Court had had judged in their favor that particular instance, but there was nothing saying that it couldn't happen again. And the settlers and the soldiers supporting the settlers were always ready to, you know confiscate more land or push people around in those spaces, you know, prevent the children from going to school. So this theme of displacement was very much, um, you know, very present for the folks in that village. And so when I visited the space, I I watched, I came to see some of these villages that had been destroyed dozens of times, for example, some of some of them had been raised over and over and over again, and people just rebuilt, you know, Mm -hmm their shacks back in order to have some degree of, of, um, of, you know, stability. And, and in that space, I met my wife who was, uh, working with an Italian, uh, human rights monitoring organization partnered with the North American organization that I went with. And yeah, uh, that's kind of how my relationship, uh, with her began. You know, we, we kept in touch on the sort of the terms of sharing this uh, experience in in this part of the southern part of the West Bank in Masafariata. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's intense. I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast series on this conflict. It's such a you know a complex historical you know deep historical conflict. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you this. Um, do you do you see you know just given you know looking at it from from the other side from the other perspective um, of Zionism? I mean, do you do you see like the, the the project of providing kind of safety and a homeland for or a homeland for for people who have historically been persecuted in in you know many of the places that they lived around the world and have, you know especially after World War II. 
felt especially vulnerable, you know, where wherever they lived. Uh, even today, with this conflict, we're seeing the rise in um, anti-Semitism around the world. You know, people, uh, Jewish people, are you know many many of them are feeling unsafe, and so the idea of having a homeland of themselves that they have some kind of historical record of, you know, belonging to, you know, this is you know, and 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 having you know the you know the British and later on the United States support this project of Zionism. Can you separate the project of Zionism and providing the safety with the project of, or can you separate Zionism with the project of providing safety for a group that has historically been dispossessed, marginalized, persecuted, uh, but now is in a situation where there, there were already people there who had been there for hundreds of if not thousands of years and you know are also feeling you know now this, this sense of dispossession and displacement. Yes, and I think it's necessary. I think we have to, at this point, separate Zionism from a universal need for safety and security. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're seeing play out right now. Mm -hmm. um, actually, and and I and I do I, I want to I want to take a step back a second to separate the the question of Zionism per se. Mm -hmm. I, I'll admit that I myself am an anarchist, and so the the principle of the state as mm -hmm. an apparatus for providing safety is something mm. I really would question. Um, I can see not just in Israel, but in uh, the United States, in um, Morocco that's continued to occupy Western Sahara, in in so many instances around the world, we've seen the apparatus of the state not provide safety, despite the fact that it is meant to create a kind of national consensus around certain shared values. Almost since the beginning, uh, we've seen that it's also then been fundamentally the root cause of a codification and a um, baked in exploitation of certain people who have against certain people who have not. And so I, I just want to start by saying that that is the basic premise from which I am starting. Then when I go um, to, you know, so I, I went on that delegation almost 15 years ago, you know, when there was not such a massive consensus now that we see in the streets of people questioning uh, what's going on in, in Gaza, for example, right now, you know, at that time, um, I think it was uh, not as clear to the world that Zionism was um fundamentally premised from its beginning in the displacement and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from their homeland. I mean, I think uh, even I myself went saying, hey, you know, we should, all people should have a right to their own state, their own autonomy. I wasn't even such a convinced uh, anarchist at that time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and yet then what I saw there was just so clearly unjust. And for example, I'll, I'll go back to the situation in, in Atwani. Uh, you know, men, so many of the people who live in the West Bank as settlers are, um, are really there because it's a convenient place. It's cheaper, it's subsidized. You, know, you, can, you can go live in a settlement and have cheaper rent, cheaper utilities, all these kinds of things. Because of course, you're part of a larger you know, state project to dis other, dispossess other people of their land. You may or may not be potentially very ideologically committed to that idea, especially in some of the larger settlements like Marad Adumim or these places that are really just across the historic green line into, into the West Bank. 
and so you may not really be that ide ideological. But there are folks then in the southern part of the West Bank, where, where I first met my wife, who have to choose to really live pretty far off the grid, to be, you know, in a situation that it's it's quite challenging to live that deeply into the desert. Mm. And those folks are firmly committed that, you know, to, to this biblical narrative that they need to return to the historical land of Israel and make the desert bloom. So mm. much so that um, that you can't really blame the state in that sense. Like they're they're really roughing it in many ways in the same way the Palestinians next door are roughing it. They do have a disproportionate level of access to resources, to water that's brought in to make it possible for them to have things, cell service, electricity, all these kinds of things that this village really had to scrape to have. But interestingly, uh, the other point is that many of them who I met personally and have spoken with are coming from the United States, are coming from other parts of the Western world mm -hmm. to support this kind of ideological project. Um and I really, I really ask myself, like, um, is it just that folks who, you know, may have felt uh, ex or experienced anti-Semitism in their countries of origin, be it the U.S. or, or you know, other parts of the world, how, do, do is it really just that that as a result of the, the the structure of the state of Israel, they have the right to? come to a uh, a uh, place that they've never been before, uh, claim a piece of land for themselves, say that as a result of biblical, you know, uh, directive, you know, nobody can can question their rights to be there. And in fact, uh, actively participate in in threatening and and hurting and um, and denying the humanity of the people who were there before. And I think what's interesting for me is that I reflect on the fact that that is, in fact, how the state that I was born in was set up originally. We're, you know, several hundred years further down the line, but I've also worked uh, in Native American communities in my own, um, you know, Pacific Northwest um, home place. And, you know, they are dealing with the consequences of that dispossession uh, generations later, and it may not be so vividly clear to us the violence and the oppression that was required to allow for manifest destiny to dispossess them of everything. But we have absolutely displaced, you know, millions of people in order to have the lifestyle we have. And to now then also export that same premise in the 21st century, knowing what we know, that, that people who were born and raised in the United States can then come to a whole other country to, to, to repeat that same pattern. I think increasingly the work, world is waking up to the fact that that simply isn't the way to build just or sustainable or regenerative future mm. society. Right. Okay. Um, so I take it uh, that you're half you're half Turkish, uh, but you're also an anarchist. That you're not in favor of reforming the Ottoman Empire to kind of sort all this out in, in you know multi-ethnic empire. <laughs> <laughs> no, because interestingly, like, I mean, you can go and speak to many Palestinians who say, like, the last time I had, a, uh, you know, the deed that I have for the land that I am, you know, still clinging to here was provided by the Ottomans. And when empires changed and, you know, the British signed the Balfour Declaration and just unilaterally, you know, gave that same thing, at, you know, essentially negating that mm -hmm. deed given by the previous uh, empire, 
I mean, wh yeah. where where are you left with? You know, what do you what do you what? Right. Are we just going to bounce between either states or uh, imperial projects? Like we 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 got to find a better solution. Right. Um, so we're not. I mean, we could we, again. This this is a whole rabbit hole. We can keep keep going down. I, I guess the last last thing I'll bring up on on this topic is you know moving forward. Right. Um, what does decolonialization mean in, in a setting where the new the settlers have been there for decades if not hundreds hundreds of years um what does it mean to provide some kind of historical justice uh what does it mean to be an anarchist with these questions uh what does it mean to be a bioregionalist with these questions i noticed you mentioned you're from cascadia so you're you know you, you implied you're a bioregionalist um we'll also get into permaculture you're also a permaculturalist uh what do you think is is i don't I, you know i don't really see that many viable pathways forward um multi-state solution uh you're not a statist um most people think that's not really viable anyway multi-ethnic democracy that also requires a state what is a pathway forward here well I'm I'm not going to pretend to be you know qualified to solve the the question of of justice in the Middle East on my own, but I think back to my experience of you know being born in rural Oregon, mm -hmm. and for example, um, one of the one of the key um, crises that really drew the community that I was born in together was the fact that increasingly as logs became scarcer. Uh, the timber harvesters were actually also spraying defoliant on um, on the forest in order to make it easier to ultimately then uh, harvest logs. Mm -hmm. And at first, there was a lot of um, of conflict in the community because these hippies had moved in. They were all about like environmentalism and da 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 da, and they, you know they were they were threatening the way of life of those people who'd like grown up in solidly as members of this logging community. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of tension there at first. And many of the loggers said, you know, uh, Earth first, we'll log the other planets later. And I, and I think the ideological, you know, divide there was was intense. And I won't pretend that it ever really got fully resolved. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening is that as they began to spray defoliants, and people began to see the real impact of like poison in the watershed and, um, you know, the fact that that uh, the logging company really didn't care about either uh, whether they were hippies or logging families below. They were just in it to make a buck. And what ended up happening is the community rallied together. You know, both loggers and hippies were able to take actually a suit against the logging companies for using substances that were in fact banned. Um, some of these were like surplus uh, chemicals uh, left over from Vietnam, which had been which had been purely and clearly banned by the EPA, but were being used, took them to court and won. And I see that as the kind of model that we can move forward on. And unfortunately, I think there's going to be some settlers in the southern part of the West Bank, as I say, who are so ideologically committed to the idea that their worldview uh, precludes any idea of sharing, that they are the only chosen people. And and I, I'm not sure how to um, to to overcome that kind of of ideological rigidity. Yeah. But 
most Palestinians that I've spoke to and many Israelis who I've also spoke with and, and, and one can simply see genuinely want peace. And unfortunately, in the models that we've been offered of statism, mm. of imperialism, of capitalism, it, we see that peace and, and right relationship with the earth and functional living within our bioregion is incredibly difficult. Uh, we see really the end game of that model playing out in, in front of our eyes. So I think the imperative of this moment is that we need to try different models and I think it really begins at the grassroots. And I think we need to find common cause around those things that we really believe in. Mm. And as I say, I'm not able to like offer um, the complete solution that will be applicable to every local community. But I think starting at those uh, ecological resources that we share in common is a good place to begin. I think um, looking at, uh, you know, common uh, infrastructure and and basic needs that we all share as both human and non-human life is an important place to begin. And once we really can focus on that element, my perception is that it can help us actually come together and fight for that common cause, which is really ultimately against capitalism um, at this point. You know, I mean, I think we can see that the real enemy at this point is not Israel, is not uh you know our logging neighbor is not even an extremist settler the real the real enemy is capitalism mm -hmm. yeah well that that could be a whole other conversation is defining capitalism and 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 how we, how we differentiate capitalism from markets and markets embedded in the commons and oh boy okay uh well let's let's guide this conversation a little bit to you talk about kind of you know creating common resources, you know, investing in, in place. Uh, and, and you've, you and your wife did this in Italy. Um, you, you were developing, what would you, would you call it a homestead or would you call it, what would you call it? I mean, it's fairly large. It's, it's what we'd call in Italian a borgo. So it's, uh, it's, it's a collection of stone buildings around a, a central courtyard. Um, okay. On about 30 acres of land in the hills uh, near Bologna. Okay, so so this sounds very idyllic. This sounds like okay. This is this is this is the way forward, and you've been doing this for for you know a number of years now, um, and now you're you're thinking of getting ready to leave. So let, let's let's talk about let's talk about this experience, this process, and 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 why um, why not why not be viable? Yeah. So as a result of um, having met my wife Federica in the place where we met and um and then recognizing that you know being a lifestyle activist was not really a way necessarily to like um put down roots for the long term um we um had the opportunity to return to her family's farm here in italy and as a result of uh, our shared experience of having been activists, we saw that there was a really uh, important need for places of refuge and uh, re-entry and kind of uh, what we, in, it's, in Italy, it's called kind of like the slide from a really intense experience in a conflict zone in particular to whatever life will be next. Many times we saw other activists uh, like, especially my wife, 
spend years in the field and then come to the end for whatever reason. In the case of, of many Israel-Palestine activists, what ends up happening is that eventually you get denied entry. Uh, you're basically banned from, from entering the country. And then people just like, you know, fall and have, have no have no place to go you know you've been dedicating your whole life and your your um identity to this cause and then what and mm -hmm. so we saw many of those folks returning to like you know this i'm a, a real sense of kind of like uh mental spiritual uh displacement in the sense that you know you were fully invested in this idea of being you know, in solidarity with people in this place, but all it really takes is the stroke of a pen to say, well, no, you're out, you know, you're banned from returning to Israel for five years or even 10 years. Yeah. And folks, folks oftentimes had no idea what to do with that. And mm -hmm. so, and many of them were, were traumatized. Many of them were burnt out. Uh, many of them had lived really difficult things in the field. And so our goal was to, uh, take on this farm and create a space for people in periods of transition. Um, you know, our goal was to sort of offer a place of refuge for people who had been displaced in some way. And so uh, we began with a group of people who all were ex-activists um, with this group that my wife had been a part of, Operation Dove. And that that was the sort of original imprint of of the formation of our project. So our goal was to develop the farm um, around principles of uh, organic and and permaculture based agriculture. Uh, we were very lucky in the fact that my in-laws already um, had been certified organic for many years and in some ways were were approaching that idea but uh, things like permaculture were new to them. Uh, they had made an incredible infrastructure in the in the Borgo where we live. We have 10 apartments um, that are both uh, kitchens, bedrooms, and baths independent, as well as then common spaces that can be shared together. Um, and we imagined this as a space that people could kind of come and, and connect together and, and, and live through this experience of, of, of together. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that idea was really born 10 years ago. Um, and we've been working at it ever since we were living in the U S at the time. We slowly found our way to come to Italy with this group of activists working on imagining this idea. I'd had background in, in intentional community and Federica had also lived in a number of, of community-based settings. So we tried to bring some of that um, you know, experience to work with you know, groups to develop you know, a model for how we could kind of articulate this project together as a community project. Um, and. And then ultimately we sort of launched under our own um, management of the farm in 2020. So uh, we'd done many years of preparing, uh, working with, with folks, groups together. Uh, my wife uh, did a PDC and, and did a lot of development of work in permaculture. I do um, a work in network facilitation and networking as, uh, as my job. So we'd really imagine sort of bringing that into this context. And, and just to interject real quick, in your job, your, your job is working with refugees uh, to learn permaculture. Is that, that that's correct? Yeah. One of, one of the roles that I have is as global coordinator for permaculture for refugees. Mm -hmm. So this is a global network of um, permaculture practitioners and educators 
working primarily with displaced people, um, teaching permaculture principles, skills, um, and in order to help displaced people apply them wherever they are. So in some cases, that's people in refugee camps. In some cases, that's people, you know, as they move, uh, you know, on route to, you know, their final destination uh, and then kind of uh, everything in between. And yeah. so, yeah, I work on that primarily in an online capacity, coordinating, you know, folks doing that work worldwide. Uh, we began in, in um, Australia. The uh, main founder, Ro Morrow, is a permaculturalist from, from the early days of, of the permaculture movement in Australia. And then, you know, from her contacts and, and other permaculturalists around the world, um, you know, this, this network has formed and we've recently incorporated as a, as a nonprofit in, in Australia. And I sort of work to sort of be the network weaver in that, um, in that community. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So let, let's, let's get back to the story with, with this land project. Um, you had some shocks, shocks to your system. Yeah. So, you know, our goal throughout was never to be a homestead in the sense of like an isolated, fully autonomous project um, off in the in the woods. You know, we really wanted to be open to new members, to guests, for example. Um, you know, we we the Italian law allows for the idea of a kind of agritourism. So the idea is that we would sustain ourselves by having. Uh, people come and stay on the farm, whether or not they were sort of bought into the overall vision of transition, also just to sustain ourselves economically, knowing that, of course, um, agriculture alone is hard to, to, to sustain ourselves with. And so we launched that project in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and within... Um, three months. Uh, Italy was really the first, well, actually two months, really, because it was in the first days of March really that the, the global pandemic really hit first sort of the, the global consciousness here in Italy. Uh, we had a group of, of Japanese guests here at that time um, who were just, it was really interesting to hear and, and experience the difference in their perception of having lived through other sort of uh, global health crises. You know, I think in some ways East Asia has had uh, different experience and different approaches to dealing with, um, uh, you know, major outbreaks of, of of disease. And so, yeah, right from that moment, right at the beginning of our of our project, um, we were hit by having to really process and then close down all of the element of of external guests coming to our place for several months, um, which in some ways. Yeah, was incredibly um, disorienting. You know, again, um, it, it may maybe not have been a physical displacement because in some ways we actually had then much more time for the farm itself. Mm. But it was a real, um, a real disassociation, a real uh, disillusionment in many ways with what we had imagined to be our plan for how we were going to create and sustain a kind of. Um, regenerative project in place because we were essentially, you know, cut off from what we had imagined has been a, a main source of income for many, many months. And so then we, in many ways, I mean, and, and all throughout this part of the challenge we were then facing is we had many people coming through in transition 
but we struggled to have that core, solid core of people who are living and working here. And and for example, COVID had a direct impact on that. Um, I'm not sure if all the listeners are aware, but the Italian approaches to you know maintaining and containing COVID were very uh, hands-on, draconian. I mean, there were flying police patrols all along the road, and if you didn't present proper papers to show why you were moving from one place to the other, uh, you know you could be fined and sanctioned pretty heavily. So, for example, there were many people who recently moved up at that time. And and then felt they couldn't actually even stay here because they they had no sort of legal right to be here until we were able to establish residency in some of those things, which during the pandemic itself, as it was breaking out, we just, we weren't able to do right away. And so yeah, we had to sort of roll with that um, that experience. In many ways, I feel like we we adapted and found other ways of you know sharing that which we had imagined to be planting for a much larger community in sort of locally organized CSA type food distribution programs. We did really rely on local networking to 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 survive through that um, through those those years. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I think in some ways we really felt like at the end of last year things were starting to turn around when um when in the spring of this year in may of 2023 um for those who may have seen in the news we were um hit by what we're increasingly seeing happening all around the world of massive flooding we we got um a significant part of our annual rainfall in two 48-hour periods in um in early and mid-may and after years of of semi-drought um what ended up happening was the the rivers burst their banks and flooded the lower parts of our region and we're at about 300 meters or so and uh our valley and several other valleys right next to it were just completely devastated by landslides um our very small rural community uh had 27 massive landslides across all of the main roads in in our area, which basically isolated all of the you know primary residential areas of of our of our municipality, mm-hmm. and uh, we ourselves had half a dozen major landslides on our land, including our road basically washed completely away. You know, so the only access road um, reaching our farm from the main road and the village below uh, just basically slipped away. Mm-hmm. And so we once again were faced with this question. We got these calls from from the local authorities as this was happening, saying, "You got to get out! You got to get out!" And we said, "You know, where where are we going to go? You know, we have animals and they're like, "Just get out! Just get out!" And then then you know you, you will figure it out because this was the sort of like central government saying, "You you have to like leave where yeah. whatever you've set up in order to then be kind of at the mercy of whatever plan we then subsequently make up." Mm-hmm. Because really, actually, the first place they'd sent displaced people from from the flooding that began down in the lowlands was a place that then ultimately got flooded itself so we're hearing this news and saying no thank you you know like mm-hmm. i'd prefer to take my risks you know being able to make sure my animals are okay make sure that we you know have uh food to eat you know that's growing there you know we we stay united as a community rather than being at the mercy of of local authorities and so that's what we did and it was challenging you know we had to had to trek through the the woods to eventually reach a vehicle to you know 
off-road it through, you know, massively damaged uh, areas. But, um, but yeah, we were able to do it. And, all, and we did not expect that there would be significant government support for this. We were told point blank that our road was not a priority. So we launched a crowdfunding campaign basically to rebuild our publicly used road. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in many ways, we were very successful. I mean, we saw um, a tremendous amount of solidarity come out, you know, of all kinds of people, uh, you know, really saying not just here, I'm going to give you this money, but really, I felt like the message was a real validation of what we were trying to do and an appreciation for this uh mission of offering a place of refuge even though we ourselves <laughs> needed uh support at that time and so we uh yeah we were able um uh, my our neighbors for example by total chance uh were road builders who had been uh who'd who'd, who'd rented a major excavator just weeks before all this went down because they were doing work on their land and luckily uh yeah when it all collapsed they were able to um begin basically once we got permits and stuff in place just rebuilding our road from from scratch we had to kind of uh deviate above the landslide it wasn't possible to rebuild where it had been before because the damage was so massive but um you know through this grassroots organizing you know we were really able to um get back on our feet and in the in the space of a month the road was fully rebuilt um you know the money that we had was enough to at least you know cover the base first basic expenses hopefully one day there might be some government support but we're not waiting on it and uh and yeah so once again once again it was just a matter of sort of picking up and saying all right we're gonna keep keep going forward with this and i will admit during covid during the road you know there were many moments where i asked myself like is this you know is this the right choice you know like you can look at the models and you can see that italy is going to be a massive hot spot you know at just a few degrees of warming in many ways this part of the world will be very difficult to live in and very difficult to cultivate food in right um and so i've asked myself many times but i felt so sustained by by the the community around us to keep going that that that's what we've done until we now have the new challenge of a um, uh, mortgage where the bank has decided to, as a result of the unrest, you know, they pointed to the war in Ukraine even before the new war has begun in, in Israel and Palestine and said, um, you know, we're going to adjust your your interest rate. And uh, they've adjusted it so dramatically that it's very possible that we just can't afford um, to continue to pay our mortgage. So again, we're confronted by the situation of saying, is this, you know, can we continue forward? And will we ultimately be displaced? Um, you know, what is that sort of final straw? that um that pushes us or this project uh over the edge and that's really the place where we find ourselves now okay so so it hasn't you haven't decided yet like last time we talked you mentioned that you were thinking about moving back to pacific northwest to cascadia sorry uh 
you know, but that's not determined yet. You're, you're still trying to, you, you've already weathered two shocks with COVID and with these storms um, and you seem to be okay. And then the financial system came in and it was like, haha, actually, you know, we have, we have the last lap here. Um, and are you thinking of trying to weather this shock somehow, some way, or like, where are you, where are you all leaning at this point? I mean, it's really difficult to say. I mean, day to day, we go back and forth. Um, I mean, I really think that whereas um, in a pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, there are certain common sense things that you can do to prevent further spread. And, you know, obviously we live in a in a in a beautiful space where we can do a lot of th things outdoors and potentially reduce the risk. Or in the case of the road, it's really clear that in order to 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 continue to survive, we need a road. <laughs> Or, mm -hmm. you know, I, I spoke mainly about the road, but there was also massive damage to our fields. You know, we lost half of our main growing field. We lost the stall for our animals. Those mm -hmm. are things that then are very, I think, concrete in terms of, uh, yes, it's incredibly devastating, but it's also clear what one would need to do to carry forward. You know, one needs to rebuild yeah. the road. One needs to take basic yeah. precautions in order to prevent transmission. In mm -hmm. the case of the bank, I don't know. I mean, it's mu it feels much further out of our hands to come up with all of the money that would be needed to to save the situation. Yeah. And so part of me says, "Hey, yeah, boy, if we just had that money, you know, we could we could we could move forward and keep going." Part of me also says to myself like, "Well, maybe this is the sort of end message that mm. you know, it's not so much the permanence of a project that makes it worthwhile it's the the way in which and the spirit in which we bring mm. uh you know our our solidarity and our energy to to the place where we find ourselves and if for example there isn't that sort of groundswell of of local support to make it happen and i'm not implying that all of our neighbors now need to pitch in to pay our mortgage mm. but short of something like that i'm not certain what the future forward might look like yeah Okay. Okay. I mean, I can imagine, I mean, you know, throughout this conversation, we're talking about dispossession, but you know, through various means, right? Like, the, like different forms of dispossession. Um, and we've also talked a little bit about permaculture. And of course, you know, to me, kind of the core philosophy of permaculture is permanent agriculture, right? It's building in place for permanence, long and slow solutions. You know, you plant nut trees that you'll harvest from in 30 years, uh, things of that nature. Uh, and it's, you know, it's about creating resilient communities, uh, regenerative communities that are built for the long term. But then, you know, and, and this is, of course, all of these principles you're you're well familiar with. Uh, but throughout your life, you've, you know, you've been aware of and now experienced yourself, you know, just, just how unstable this world is for a lot of people. Um, how many people are being dispossessed uh, through various means and will probably continue to be dispossessed in the future, probably increasingly so, right? Given all of the best, even given all of the best practices, you build all of the swales, all of the whatever, you know, and you still have these landslides, right? Or, or you know, the political situation changes and you're forced off your land or the financial system changes and you're forced off your land. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you like this is a, this is a kind of a tension, I think, even a tension within, you know, that permaculturalists don't often 
you know, recognize or acknowledge. And of course, you're teaching permaculture, permaculture to to refugees, often in temporary situations, which is is inherently even there kind of a, a bit of a contradiction. Like, how do you how do you you know how I mean, it's an active question, but how are you how are you you know thinking through these tensions? Yeah, well, like for example, one one thing that I think about related to that question in the context of of uh, of a refugee mm-hmm. is like a crucial part of of permaculture is observing our surroundings, right? And um, even if those surroundings ultimately are temporary for us, like how can we best uh, leverage the resources and not waste that which is around us in order to, um, you know, regenerate the best we can with what we have. So for example, one one thing I'll just offer that we frequently hear and talk about in permaculture for refugees, which would make many permaculturists, permaculturalists cringe, is like, what's one of the most permanent resources available worldwide in all kinds of situations? It's plastic. You know, there's plastic everywhere. There's plastic bottles, there's plastic uh, bags, all over the place, and and many of the refugee camps, in particular, are are full of you know waste uh, plastic that's just sitting there. And and we can say to ourselves, ah, oh, this is terrible. We need to clean up the plastic. How do we deal with this waste product? But at the other hand, if that is a primary resource that's available to you, mm-hmm. how might you be able to, for example? use plastic bottles to catch rainwater off the top of your tent to then use it at a time when you're dealing with drought? How might you be able to like plant plants in, uh, you know, waste plastic, which is going to be more resilient than, you know, the best kind of mud and wattle thing that you might be able to make, which you might have to destroy again in a week's time because you're moved out of the camp anyway. You know, these are, I think, real questions that we as permaculturalists need to act ourselves like, is it about the purity of the principle of, you know, I'm going to make this awesome, you know, food forest that I will um, appreciate the benefits of, you know, 30 years from now? Or am I going to really observe that which is around me and perhaps now compromise with that which I have right here and maybe even plant a seedling that I can carry with me to eventually plant in the food forest where I find myself long term? But in the short term, I think uh, we can't let um, perfection be the enemy of good, you know. And we yeah. use in 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 a lot of the the intentional community movement the principles of sociocracy, which is another way of kind of group decision making. We talk about uh, good enough for now, safe enough to try, you know. Like we don't know what's going to be happening tomorrow, a month from now, a year from now. How can we best live as uh as genuinely and and as close to the principles that we believe in as possible mm. with as minimal impact on uh on the land or the people around us so as to genuinely regenerate the best we can in the circumstances in which we find ourselves yeah yeah okay um yeah i'm still i'm still just you know relatedly i'm thinking through just you know what the future holds in terms of you know just the 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 challenges associated with so many people that are effectively homeless uh moving around right uh if we if we believe the climate projections there will be hundreds of millions of climate refugees 
um, you know, in the next few decades, uh, probably geopolitical refugees will probably amp up related to climate, right? Uh, political refugees, et cetera. And, you know, contrasting this with trying to create stable communities, right? In order to think, say, you know, to build community or think about originally, there has to be some degree of stability, but how can this stability be flexible enough to say, bring in refugees um, and, you know, help them acclimate to a, a regenerative system if they're not already familiar and, and have been practicing already. Uh, and perhaps, you know, I think one potential opportunity problem is a solution is that, you know, in terms of, you know, building resilience, you know, refugees, you know, are probably the world-class experts. Um, you know, of course, not, you know, against, not against their will, they had, they had to be right. Uh, but that's, you know, that's a very, you know, useful skill set that I think communities that are more established that, you know, are tried, trying to build a sense of, you know, uh, consistency intergenerationally and uh, traditions based on place, you know, this could, you know, one, one way to frame it to, you know, is for me is, is like, you know, what new skill sets can can be brought in and how can this problem become a solution for or a win-win for for multiple people yeah i mean i really i really agree that um that displaced people can be an amazing resource if we allow them to be mm -hmm. and one of the key things that i think many of your listeners could agree with because I'm, I'm sure they're they're self-selected beyond uh you know the the sort of uh average person in public is we get so many requests to come stay at our project and learn about community life and get close mm -hmm. to the land. And we see in those people that come, uh, you know, many of them, you know, not displaced, mm -hmm. um, a tremendous challenge with practical skills. Um, you know, many people aspire to know how to plant and grow their own food or take care of animals. But uh, we are so divorced from that experience. It seems to be an epidemic in Western society. Is lack of practical skills. Exactly. exactly. So yeah. part of part of our goal in creating the space of refuge and a space of transition for people was also to create a space where some of those skills were transmitted, and you know, each one teach one within this context to yeah. provide a, you know a, a basis for you know mutual aid where it's absolutely lacking. You know, there's good relations between neighbors and rural communities and we know how that works, but uh, but there are a tremendous number of particularly young people. You know, there's an unemployment crisis in Italy. You know, so many young people are out of work and at loose ends, still living with their parents and 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 struggle to just basically engage with their with their natural surroundings. And I think the opportunity that we have here is that Italy has also been talking now for the last, you know, almost a decade of the crisis of immigrants, you know, overrunning, you know, the, the, the current fascist government that we have in Italy really was, was ushered in on a wave of anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm -hmm. But many of these immigrants who are, are coming to, to Italy uh, have had to overcome tremendous uh, physical and practical challenges to get here, you know, mm -hmm. come up with huge sums of money, uh, cross deserts, you know, on foot, uh, you mm -hmm. know, find ways to 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 get a, a boat across the mediterranean to arrive here you know i'm not saying that that there's some you know innate uh, 
practical skill that comes to that. But the, but but the but the challenge that 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 mm -hmm. migration and forced displacement causes, just as you say, can mm -hmm. provide tremendous opportunities for people to build resilience, but also cultivate critical skills that all of us are going to need. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we point the finger and other those mm -hmm. folks as coming from different cultures, as as you know you know, not, um, you know, not contributing to society in the way that we'd wish or, you know, enclaving themselves or things of that kind. That's a big part of the discourse here in Italy. Uh, I think we miss out on all of that, which we could be learning from them, which may not, once again, be, as I talked about in terms of my experience of Turkey, may not be a happy multicultural, oh, you eat this way and I eat that way. Wow, that's so cool. But like a whole nother worldview on like what precariousness looks like and what the future might hold and what kinds of skills and knowledge and practical uh you know application will be necessary for us to to survive you know another century yeah 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 i mean i, I think any way you slice it it's it's going to be challenging um i'd like to believe i i think that's a beautiful vision that you put put forward i mean i you know you know, as much as, you know, I, I personally, you know, I, I, I cringe at like kind of what are generally thought of as like xenophobic attitudes, but at the same time, I also empathize with, you know, like the feeling, and this is a different situation, but like in, in, in the United States, there's a feeling among a lot of rural people that, um, that there's a lot of newcomers coming in, uh, usually, uh, you know, on the wings of gentrification, right uh new kind of investment projects uh new money coming in uh displacing people from the land uh, through property taxes or you know uh enclosing their ecological base with hunting and, and gathering and, and and various things uh and just people coming in who don't kind of understand or respect kind of the local traditions kind of you know the the tacit knowledge of the place and 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 kind of the immense frustration with that right um and of course this can also be the case with you know very rapid kind of cultural clash as well right with just a whole whole new set of people coming in and you know i also empathize empathize with that right like there needs to be some kind of continuity for a place to be a place um and so i i don't really see you know like yeah, I wonder if you want to talk more about that, of like this ideal of being able to welcome in, especially people who have been uprooted uh, against their will, right, in, in precarious situations that that need a new home and welcoming the, them in while at the same time not undermining kind of existing kind of cultural bases that have allowed the natives, quote unquote, to 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 survive and live there. Like, do you, do you have do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean that's it's been really interesting for me to live in a second culture and experience a really different way of of perceiving that that challenge because um you know so I'm originally from the US that you know it's written right there that that our motto is e pluribus unum and even if we don't live that out all the time there's this at least baseline understanding that we're a, a nation of immigrants. You know, Italy doesn't have that understanding and and immigration and migration was never considered a like positive enriching right. possibility. You know, Italy was 
un, you know, ruled by others, even within its regionality, there was, you know, the papal state that controlled this area. And, and so there's a, a, there's a tremendous suspicion of sort of outsiders coming to basically tell us what to do or, or, you know, force us into ways of life that, you know, are not our own. And I get that. And, um, and within that, I think there's a sort of, um, a false association uh, mm. in that narrative here that in, in, you know, in my region here in Romagna, this bioregion was under the papal state was under various sort of ducats and, you know, you know, Lords, you know, that were, that were distant and, and, you know, ruling by fiat mm. often with complete disregard for local feeling. And, um, and frankly, I don't see that as too drastically different than the centralized government that we have today, right? And and you know, we're being told like these are the things that you need to to do to believe in. You know, we're going to tax you this way or that way, and we'll tell you what's best for you. You know, today Italy is increasingly old. You know, Italians are not having children. Uh, basic infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, rural communities are depopulating as people move into urban centers looking for work and opportunities. And in many ways, uh, I've seen in our immediate area that migrants have filled that gap. You know, one of our local municipalities here has one of the largest percentages of immigrants uh, with respect to native born Italians in the country. And that is not always an easy, um, you know, uh, not always an easy thing you know there's there's a there's a strong presence of the far right in that municipality you know people backlashing against that uh that thing but there's also a tremendous uh number of immigrants who work with elderly people as like in-home care folks that otherwise uh you know might have been forced to move into the city just to be in a rest home you know so are able to like live in their homes with the support of an immigrant who comes and supports them. I I struggle to see how that is bad for us in the end. And I think it's important that, you know, despite what the neo-fascists will say, uh, I I think it's it's hard for me to um to focus too much on the ideological highfalutin and, and this is easy for me to say as an immigrant myself, but like what is you know, Italian values and our Italian identity in the face of these really practical challenges that we're facing right now. You know, those immigrants themselves were were washed out and and, you know, dealing with the same landslides and mucking things out in the same way that that I and other native born Italians were in these last things. You know, in the face of these crises, these are people who also want to live well, who also want to build community to the extent that we're able to welcome them and integrate them into uh into where we find ourselves so yes we can push back against the way that they eat or act or pray differently but at the end of the day i think with the very very practical challenges that we're going to be facing moving forward like we're not going to have a lot of choice it's going to be you know who is my neighbor today when mm -hmm. my road collapses and can i trust them and can i work with them maybe not be on agreement on all aspects of what I have, you know, of all points of worldview, but enough to just get that road rebuilt or figure out how we're going to move forward together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking uh, the idea of the commons just came up. And of course, 
you know, the first principle that Eleanor Ostrom identified was clear boundaries. I'm curious what you think about, and, and of course, the purpose of clear boundaries in her framework is that it needs to be clear both who can benefit from the resource and also who has responsibility to help maintain the resource, right? And, you know, I can imagine if there's if there's too much fluidity or or too much kind of transition or chaos, it's hard to be able to determine, okay, who has responsibility for this resource, right? And so can you even maintain a resource under those conditions? Um, but of course, we're living, we're not living under stable conditions, like, you know, uh, perhaps certain societies in the past who have had their commons for hundreds of years and have been successful. You know, what are these principles of the commons and, and thinking in terms of the commons mean, uh, especially the first principle, you know, on, you know, in the context that we're talking about? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I think it gets back to what I was sharing before about like practical ability. Um, mm. I think we've taken the commons for granted. I think we've taken infrastructure for granted. I think we've taken decision-making by elected leaders for granted. Mm. And as a result, uh, you know, the commons where I am is diminished um, for sure. And I will also say that as an immigrant to this community, I really struggle with negotiating, like, what are the boundaries? <laughs> what yeah. are the responsibilities? There is not an Italian word for uh, commitment or <laughs> accountability or, you know, some of these things that for me are crucial mm -hmm. to, you know, the foundations of effective mutual aid and, uh, you know, community grassroots organizing. <laughs> I, yeah. I think without those agreements and without those clear boundaries, uh, I have seen over and over again how um, when push comes to shove, uh, you know, many shove off. Yeah. I think though we absolutely need to be prepared, as you say, for that becoming increasingly chaotic and that becoming increasingly urgent. Right. Um, it might be interesting for your, your U.S. listeners to think about the fact that, like, for example, here in Italy, we still really have the benefit of like public health care and um, you know a pretty functional you know public education system and. Uh, that doesn't cost, you know, anywhere near what we're we've gotten used to paying in the U.S., uh, which is amazing. And unfortunately, at the same time, I think feeds into a sense of like, well, I'm going to complain about the things that don't work, but I'm not really necessarily going to like invest in making them work better um, because I'm not used to like having to hustle to to get what I need. But inevitably, I think all of us are going to ex be experiencing what is already very present in the U.S. of late stage capitalism, where really those who can afford to get health care or good schooling can and those who can't don't. And um, and those that organize as communities to provide that for themselves, for their own commons mm -hmm. are ultimately, I think, those who will be most resilient and successful as we move forward. Right, right. And somehow we need to be figuring out how to make uh, it's almost like, you know, whereas, whereas historically the commons have taken several decades, if not centuries, to evolve, to fine tune the, the, the right set of rules and commitments, uh, et cetera. And whereas now we're dealing with, you know, a situation that's much more in flux, you know, with people who don't really know each other 
um, people who might not be committed to that place. Um, like, and perhaps your work with, you know, teaching permaculture to refugees might, you know, maybe some of the, you know, some of the, the projects uh, that, that your organization is involved in, you know, might, might be insightful here, but like, how do we, you know, like, how do we create a, like almost like a commons on demand that inherently requires some kind of trust, requires evolution of proper institutions, but, it, you know, now in a situation where we don't all often have that time, we don't often have that trust. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we need to take small steps. I think, for example, it takes um, if it's something that's completely unfamiliar. If we've always taken the commons for granted, if we've always taken um, you know our own ability to to be stable in the place that we live for granted, mm. it's it's obvious that we're we're going to struggle when that's turned upside down. So, for example. Anything from like participating in a CSA and realizing that you're like helping support a small time farmer, mm. you know, sustain their business all the way to, you know, maybe like in the case of the community where I was born, you know, rallying together to like bring suit against the the logging community that's that's destroying your watershed, you know, and all the space in between. We've got to experiment with some of these things. And I see, you know, for example, in the the projects of uh, permaculture for refugees, like there's a there needs to be a constant feedback loop on that. It's it's not like we can just say, oh, we're gonna go and like teach people cool techniques for for permaculture, and then you know give them a pat on the back and say, have a nice life. <laughs> we need to continue to be in constant contact and. Understanding that in case in some cases people are actually going to be moving, you know, you know their their situations are going to change. I'll give one example. You know, one of the one of the permaculture training trainings that we did um, with through Permaculture for Refugees in uh, 2018 2019 um, was in um, camps in southern Turkey, so along the border with um, with uh, Syria where there were many displaced people, uh, Syrians particularly coming across um, as a result of the civil war in Syria. And, um, you know, there was there was a tremendous need uh, in those camps for people to have practical skills to sustain themselves. Interestingly, the situation of, of refugees in, in Turkey is that they've been used a lot as sort of political pawns. Uh, the central Turkish government has, has um, played Turks off each other and and with uh, and 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 using Syrians as a way of kind of like guilting Turks into like supporting our Muslim brethren. Um, and as a result, I think um, it's driven even more of a wedge, I think, between local communities and and the the the, the refugees who are there. Mm -hmm. um, and so then what happened, we saw earlier this year that there was this massive earthquake in in that area. It's a very earthquake prone region. There have been many earthquakes there over the years. But um, we saw a tremendous uh, degree of organizing amongst Turkish permaculturalists to respond to that emergency, not just to create the nth uh, refugee or displaced persons camp, which now was not just for Syrians, but also for Turks who had been displaced out of their land, but how can we together use mm -hmm. principles of permaculture to respond to the situation? So just one example is 
Uh, housing is a tremendous problem in that area because it's another arid desert region. It gets incredibly hot in the summertime, incredibly cold in the wintertime. Many people were being set up to live in shipping containers, uh, which then required like air conditioning units to keep them cold in the summer and heater units to keep them warm in the in the winter. There's no way you can consider that sustainability, especially sustainable, especially with the all of the main routes and uh, both for train and trucks being cut off in certain parts of that earthquake hit area. So one of the key projects of one of our partners in Turkey was to work on more locally sourced uh, sort of modular building units that people could install and set up in the places where they found themselves in those really earthquake hit areas to just begin to rebuild infrastructure right from the from the ground up, at least have a home and a roof over their heads. Mm -hmm. Understanding that a shipping container is like made with the understanding of it being temporary. But we can see refugees in Gaza now living in refugee camps that are now being bombarded, who started out in tents and then then you know built a cement structure, you know, where the tent was to then still hope that one day they would return to their to their home in in Israel or in other parts of, of the area. Only to find that after 70 plus years, they're still displaced. They're still waiting for for their just situation. So so going back to the situation in Turkey right now, to build a modular home that can be then fairly simply dismantled and then brought to another place when and if that time is possible allows and accepts the reality of the uncertainty of the situation. And also then hopefully bakes in a sense of like, some degree of autonomy and ownership over something that may not require that we are on exactly this piece of land or at exactly this place that we find ourselves right now, still bringing some degree of resource, both knowledge and material that we can if we do have to move. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, we should probably wrap up pretty soon, but uh, I want to give the opportunity to, uh, if there's any kind of discussion topics that you would still like to explore that we haven't you haven't really covered anything that anything else that you want to bring up in the conversation i mean i think one thing that's key here and i am sorry my wife had hoped to join us and and for logistical reasons was not going to but i mean i do think it's important um at times for us to look around our permaculture communities and say you know who's here in the room you know who's participating in these conversations and frequently it's folks with a lot of privilege and a lot of people who've you know maybe had a college degree and decided that even though they've they've uh, you know had a, a higher education they're going to go back and and you know work the land uh which maybe doesn't even require a degree you know and um and i don't want to speak for my wife for example but you know she's a first generation college student you know she grew up on on this farm and you know her family really built up this place uh without a lot of resources you know besides their their own uh sweat equity to make it happen and um and i carry that with me you know coming from a much more privileged background you know my parents chose to go back to the land you know mm -hmm. i have in many ways much more of a like safety net to fall on mm -hmm. um so how can we look at the projects that we do look at the ways in which we imagine permaculture look at the ways in which we think about displacement or even begin to imagine our own displacement and think about how we can be of service to 
those who are marginalized or even just simply less privileged than we are in whatever we do. Um, because in many instances, my experience is that those folks have skills and life experiences that um, prepare them, I think, in some ways, in ways that in a very self-serving way can, can benefit those of us who've had much easier lives. And at the same time, I think it's just right and just to, to imagine, you know, a future where we're not living premised on exploitation. You know, it, mm. we don't have to live where one person has to be oppressed for another to have what they need. And that is so fundamentally baked into the way in which we're currently living yeah. that even as we imagine future utopias, we struggle at times, I think, to to look past that. And we think about how am I going to get mine? How am I going to learn the skills that I need to do what works for me? And we forget that there's a much bigger system and humanity around us who ultimately, you know, needs to be raised up together. And once again, I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again, has the common enemy of of a capitalist exploitative system that tells us we need to fight against each other uh, to benefit a very, very few of us. We're not going to have problems in the way we're going to have them because they've got the money and the resources and the influence to do whatever they want, no matter what, you know, we've got to, we got to stop, you know, being crabs in a barrel and, and find ways to, to collaborate uh, because increasingly, increasingly we're going to have not as much chance or choice around that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the demographic you're describing of like recognizing their privilege of, you know, highly educated, wanting to go back to the land, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in that demographic as well. Uh, and in some ways, you know, not, you know, this is in no way a victim narrative, but I, I feel very underprivileged in the sense that I don't, I, I got into it not know, knowing any practical skills, right? And I've been trying to learn some, and it's incredibly difficult, uh, obviously. Um, and so I recognize that the people that I need to reach out to to help me are, you know, people who you know, uh, might be, you know, a, a local refugee community or immigrant community who, you know, actually knows how to slaughter a pig, for example, right? And that's, yeah, I mean, I I think for me, I mean, I think the attitude is, you know, the attitude of one population is privileged, the other population is not, the population that's privileged needs to help the population that's not that that only goes so far, right? I, I think, you know, and that might be a first step, but but uh, you know, I think a more ultimately regenerative attitude is that we each have a set of assets and skills and abilities, um, and they're different. And so rec recognizing, you know, how we can benefit each other um, to, to help meet our basic needs and, and live fulfilling lives it, it is ultimately, it's, you know, it, it's the most ennobling for everybody, right? Uh, it, it's eventually getting out of you know who's the victim who's the oppressor uh, you know and 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 going into you know what do i lack what do you lack how can we help each other out and i you know i know i lack a lot even though i'm highly educated uh mostly in the wrong things uh by the way but and i'm not blaming anyone for that but that that was the culture that i came into of like you need to leave you need to get an education you need to leave home right and that's just kind of me as an historical subject having to do that 
but you know now i'm finding myself uh very much lacking uh not so much in i guess cultural capital you know but but lacking in in you know uh abilities abilities that that now i'm recognizing that all of us are going to really need yeah well and i really appreciate for example listening to your podcast i see that you're you know, you're using this as a platform to work some of that out and talk about it and share some of those skills. And and I don't want to diminish that in any way. I think the thing is that we still just need to acknowledge that the majority of food that comes to our plate in the United States, for example, mm. is still harvested, grown, planted by immigrants. And, you yeah. know, there's a tremendous uh, set of skills and knowledge and frankly, infrastructure provided by, you know, people living uh, and and making that possible for us mm -hmm. that often is untapped. And I think sometimes as we imagine perfect permaculture utopias, mm -hmm. uh, we forget that we could be drawing in friends. I, I, this happens also for us here in, in Italy. Much of the agricultural sector is held up also by immigrants here in this area. And we've worked with uh, with folks, migrant folks here on the farm talking about skills and and um, and and principles of permaculture, for example, but also getting really good feedback about like, well, that's great. And, you know, like based on my experience of like harvesting, you know, uh, figs this way, you know, for hours on end, like, have you thought about, you know, the, the way in which the, the, you know, the pitch can 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 be super itchy after the like a hundredth tree, you know, like mm -hmm. if I have just the number of trees just for myself, you know, that's one kind of calculus. But mm -hmm. if if I can really factor in the experience of those who are doing that to really underpin, you know, our uh, mine and our collective lifestyle in, in a much more large scale way, I mm -hmm. think we have a tremendous resource in that. I think we have a tremendous opportunity in that not just in a sort of kumbaya, oh, you know, you teach me and I teach you, but to like really fundamentally imagine the scale and scope of what's going to need to be reinvented for mm. the more regenerative bioregional communities that we're going to need to create moving forward. Yeah. Well said. Um, I think that's a good place to to end it. So so thank you, Evan. Um, this is this has been a very very fascinating conversation, and uh, I. I really wish you the best in whatever you and your family decides in terms of where you end up staying or, or going um, and um, hoping keep in touch and perhaps in a year or two, it, you know, once your kind of longer term situation has been settled, we can jump back on and have another conversation about, you know, what it took to 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 go through that decision. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you again for yeah. um, for this chance. You know, this began really as me being interested in in you exploring the theme of Israel and Palestine, and just being really curious to see the interconnection between that theme and this wider question of Dumer optimism. So, I really appreciate the chance to sort of explore it more in depth, and I'll definitely keep in touch as our situation develops. So, thank you. All right. Great, Evan. Uh, talk to you later. Thanks, Jason. Cheers. Right.